Advanced Principles Podcast, or APP, was created to be an outlet for like-minded individuals to share in the broader conversations on leadership, retail market updates, and incredible personal success stories. On APP, you will hear a collection of stories from the titans of the retail industry, as well as thought and practice leaders covering the spectrum of the economy. Please click the subscribe button and look for the newest episodes to be released. To some regard, there can only be so much consolidation. The best companies are those that are continually innovating. How you champion that role as a female in a male-dominated industry. So certainly we've seen an uptick in the M&A space. I, I mean, there's just, it, it's it's not weekly, but it, it just sometimes it feels like it's weekly. You're, right. you're getting, seeing announcements of insurance companies buying administrators, administrators buying agencies, uh, right. you know, all this different fluctuation. Now, there is this perception out there that as, you know, Fed changes their monetary policy, um, trying to curb the hyperinflation um, that we're experiencing right now, that there's this, there's a thought out there that money is going to dry up. Uh, I, I don't, money that's been there is not going to go away and it's still going to be investable and it's going to be deployed. What, what do you envision as we go forward? And the cost of capital is certainly going to increase over the next 18, 24, even maybe 36 months. How is that going to change the M&A experience that we've seen the last three to four years for the next three to four years? Well, M&A will not end. Uh, However, valuations could come down because the buyers will have to be looking at some lower returns. So the cost of debt capital is increasing. And so it takes, it's more, it costs more to take out a loan. These deals are highly leveraged. And in order to continue to make the returns that they need, private equity firms will have to lower the value. But that's gonna be tempered with the fact that we're at almost a trillion dollars, we're like $900 billion of private equity capital in the United States that's not yet invested. So it's sitting out there, it's allocated. In in 2021, some of the large uh, pension funds and, and like CalPERS and others, allocated higher percentages of their investable portfolio to alternative asset classes away from the public markets. Well, if you're not in the public markets, you have to go into private equity. And so more money has been moving into private equity. And I mean, there are still new funds that are coming about every week that are emerging and funds that are raising, you know, groups that are raising their second, third, fourth funds, and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's a lot of money to put to work. Competition will continue to keep valuations high in this industry. Hmm. Maybe we've hit some frothy numbers, but they're still going to be high, especially in this industry. Companies in the automotive space are cash flow positive. They're cash machines. They're cash cows. Private equity wants to invest in cash producing companies. And there will continue to be comp, you know, competition. You know, where we've seen venture capital and private equity, you have some fits and starts recently, is more on the technology side, you know, pre, pre-profit companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, back market is challenging. We had SPACs that were in the public side that were investing in and in buying companies that are not going to see a profit for three years. Um, and you're valuing them off year three revenue. But now those same SPACs are looking for companies that are actually producing cash flow are actually profitable today. But in this industry, in this sector, these companies are profitable, they're stable, and they've done what people did not expect. And that was, they have been growing 
while auto sales have contracted. And it is, we, we never had this in our models. When we would do downside models, you know, we would say, well, you know, if we have another 2008, 2009, we're going to have some problems in this industry. But that didn't happen. So this is still going to be an, uh, a wow. hot area for private equity. So private equity investment drives M&A because when they buy uh, a platform company, so let's say an, uh, an administrator, they need to continue to grow that company, you know, 15 to 20% per year bottom line. You can do that inorganically or organically. Organically, just increase sales. It's hard to do. A lot mm -hmm. easier to buy something. So there's still going to be M&A. We're going to see more vertical integration because that's another great way to take costs out of the system. Um, and as the private equity firms are coming in here, strategics still need to grow and they have cash on balance sheet. And so they're going to be aggressive in wow. purchasing companies. Yeah. So you brought up a couple of great points there. C certainly the vertically integrated aspect of it. So uh, you were an independent agent. We pride ourselves on being independent. Um, we love that we can be nimble and adapt to our dealers every need. Um, and, and certainly we're up against vertically integrated companies every day. And the vertically integrated companies are growing in mm -hmm. scale and in number every passing month, it, it seems. Right. So, you know, there, there is, to some regard, there can only be so much consolidation, right? The industry is the industry and it's a large industry and it's still very fractious. And, and there's a lot of different segments that players can get involved in. But at some point, um, a decade of consolidation can compress what the market space looks like. So where do, where do we tree, kind of reach that maximum velocity or density with vertically integrated companies and mm -hmm. is vertically integrated going to stay just traditional insurer, admin, distribu distribution, or are we now going to start seeing it go down to the dealer group network where insurers through administrators, through distribution models, either independent agent or direct sales force are now acquiring dealers or dealer groups? Good questions there. You know, when we were sitting there in 2015 and we saw M&A start to pick up of administrators uh, being acquired by private equity firms. We, I think that's when we issued our first white paper saying, we think the industry is going to consolidate and agencies are going to be the hot ticket. Administrators need to control their distribution. And so they're going to buy agents. And we've seen just this rapid set of acquisitions that are happening by administrators. You know, we have National Auto Care that's been buying um, agents. So you have Portfolio Group, and then you have like consolidated you know, uh, brokers like Brown and Brown and PCF mm -hmm. that are coming in and, and buying FNI agencies. So we saw that shift coming, but here's the industry that this is similar to the insurance industry, insurance brokerages. So about 12, 13 years ago, private equity said, ooh, the insurance brokerage industry is very fragmented. We're gonna buy a platform, then we're gonna do lots of acquisitions. And so they, you know, companies like HGGC or G, uh, GTCR in Chicago bought platforms and then started doing these acquisitions. They do hundred acquisitions a year of these little wow. agencies. And it continues. Every year, there are 600 acquisitions in the of insurance agencies. Well, how does that happen? It keeps getting repopulated. So what happens is some agencies get acquired by a bigger agency. All the junior agents stay. And then a year or two later, they pop out of their larger company. And then they go form their own agency. And then they grow it and sell it. 
And I'm starting to see that happen in the F&I industry. Mm -hmm. So you have F&I agents that are being acquired. They stay with the acquirer, but they weren't the guys who owned the, you know, didn't get the big payout. You know, they, they were the junior guy. So then they are like, wait, I get, I get this game plan. I'm going to go do this. And they go and create a company themselves and create it to sell it. So we're seeing that also in other areas. Mm-hmm. We sold a company um, 20 at the end of 2020. I think that's right. Uh, it, yes. End of 2020 uh, called um uh, not sure if I can. I'm not sure if I can disclose it. It was a direct-to-consumer marketer of vehicle service contracts. I had not even heard of the company when they called me, because they kind of stayed under everybody's radar. That team had worked at Endurance, so Endurance mm. uh, Endurance Dealer Services. When we sold Endurance back in 2014, 2015, they were there for it, and the founder was there, and he said, "Wait, I can do this." And so he created his own company, built it. And, you know, at age 30, he made a good chunk of change when we sold his company. And so that's happening with administrators. I am always amazed when I come across an administrator that we don't know already. And it's because it's only two years old. They spun out of another company. How is there enough room to compete? Well, the problem, and this is true for any large company, right? This is, this is like, this has been true over the last 40 years of MA. The hardest part of, of mergers and acquisitions is not the transaction. It's what happens over the next 18 months post-transaction. How does that integration work? You know, it's not just eliminating heads. It's really, are you taking advantage of the revenue opportunities? Are the company cultures compatible? Are the people compatible? And not all transactions work out. And so you'll see companies that consolidate up and then they have to break back down into the pieces. Mm -hmm. Or the employees and teams within those organizations say, gosh, our clients are complaining about our service. This is not what it should have been. This isn't, when we were small, we were so much better. And so they leave and go start a competitor. So M&A kind of creates, is kind of like a forest fire going through, you know, the forest fire comes through, takes everything out, and then it leaves room for new innovative companies to come Mm. out of the ground. And that's what we see. So more companies will be coming up and that will fuel more mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, a a fantastic perspective. Very well said. Uh, I think that you articulated that incredibly well. I think, and I think the same thing. I've seen a lot of the, the super agencies um, like you said, the, the junior agent kind of pops out two years out and says, yeah, I, I could ride this ride and, and have a go at it. So, right. so uh, just phenomenally said, well said. So as we go, but the market that the agents and administrators are currently calling on, and I'm not talking about the furniture industry and everything mm-hmm. else that certain administrators are getting into sure. these days, is the dealer world, the universe, we have seen it shrink. Um, now, s- certain markets, certainly in the Southeast, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, we're seeing growth and new points being awarded, but those are really being kind of taken from the Midwest, the Rust Belt or wherever, mm-hmm. is that universe of decision makers is shrinking. Right. And there's been a lot of speculation of what that actually shrinks to from a high of 18 to 19,000 decision makers. Do you foresee a space that we get below 10,000 individual decision makers to call upon or are we going to you know, stick somewhere between 12, 14, 15,000 decision makers? 
Yeah, I, I think kind of that 14, 15,000 number feels right to me. Um, you, you do have, you know, bigger dealerships are getting bigger, bigger dealer groups mm-hmm. are getting bigger. Uh, once again, you're going to have then more dealerships start up because, you know, you then have the, the guy who you know, worked at his dealership for 30, for 10, 15 years, understand how it works. And he goes and starts a better dealership, a new kind of dealership. And that will keep happening. Maybe not in every market, but nationally, that will keep happening. And so I don't think we'll consolidate up or consolidate down to that small of a level. But dealership consolidation is a very important issue for administrators and for agents. Mm -hmm. And when we are working with companies, we take a look at who are their dealership clients. And we start trying to figure out, okay, are they an acquirer or an acquiree? Like, mm-hmm. what does the path for the client base look like? And, you know, when we're selling an agent, a good rule of thumb is that agency ideally shouldn't have more in, in, in a perfect world. The highest value agents are those that don't have dealership consolidation of greater than 10% of sales. And that's at per dealer group. And that's another thing that often isn't looked at in this industry. Everybody's like, well, of course I don't have more than 10% consolidation. And I'm like, but by dealer group, like, oh, here, Gina, here's our database. We look at the database and we're like, well, where are the dealer groups? And then we go in and I have people that go and look out and try to figure out every dealership across the country, what dealer group they belong to. And we're like, you know, actually you have 20% concentration. And they're like, oh, really? You know, and so that that concentration risk is real. Administrators have the same risk. And in any M&A transaction, we look into that and we you know, when I'm talking to companies and my team's talking to companies in advance of you know selling them, sometimes we get to know companies two, three years in advance of being sold. Uh, we'll say, hey, let's talk about who you're working with. What is your risk here? What's your concentration? Like, oh, well, you know, we have 30% with one dealer group, but that dealer group keeps buying other dealerships. So we're growing with them. I'm like, that's fantastic. And I hate to rain on your parade. And that's a great way to be a business owner. And I love it. Um, but that's a risk for you in a sale and it's going to uh, dampen your multiple. It's going to put, put your valuation at risk. Don't give up that client. You just got to grow around it. So you know, mm-hmm. that's the impossible, but if somebody wants the advice of how to get the best value for their company, you got to keep that concentration as low as possible. Oftentimes people like anything greater than 20% is a non-starter. Less than 10% is ideal. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you brought that an administrator that I had worked for when I, when I started, we started to examine kind of the revenue diversity. And mm-hmm. we saw that such a high concentration came from such a few number of agent distribution partners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't about selling the company or anything. It was just about the health of the business and the protection mm-hmm. and the volatility that's in there because we, we started to see agents transact. And I'm like, you know, if one of these core agents that owns so much of our distribution model transacts and sells to another administrator, at some point in time, that administrator is going to start putting some weight on them to convert business. And then all of a sudden we're at jeopardy. So, you know, you do, it's, it's, I think it's great advice, obviously going into a sale to make your company as valuable as possible. But even if you're going to just run it as a legacy company for a period of time, it's just a healthy thing to do and evaluate and look at. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, it, if you ask any business owner, it, like the I was 
in private equity back in the 90s. And we would always, uh, some senior guy in the meeting would always, the last question would always be, so what keeps you up at night? You know, that is like a classic private equity question when they're wearing their little Patagonia vest and <laughs> real insightful. But really, and nobody ever answers that truthfully, or, or I'm going to tell my clients, don't answer that truthfully. Like the best heard, the best one I heard was a guy who said, I'm never up at night. I take Ambien. But you know, <laughs> the biggest, the, I think the thing that keeps everyone up at night in this industry is concentration risk. Is my dealership going to be sold? Is my agents, are my agent clients yep. going to be sold? And that it, with the consolidation we've seen amongst dealerships, consolidation we've seen amongst, amongst agents, that is a real risk. Yeah. Yeah. No question. So ultimately, you know, as we look through this, and all the transactions are going to happen. I think you gave a great perspective on that and everything else. Do you still see a good, profitable, equitable pathway for the one to three location dealership groups and uh, the independent agent um, uh, that's out there that's trying to strive and thrive and not working towards a sale, just working towards a company culture and building out a business? Is there still a, an environment where these are successful in your opinion? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, some of the most successful agencies I've seen are actually in rural areas. So where they don't have a lot of competition, you, you think mm-hmm. about the large agency groups and they're just hitting for volume. Like they're just, they're just pushing. They want to be able to go like in Chicago, Western Avenue has a number of dealerships right up and down Western Avenue. They want to be able to go pop in each one. Um, an agent starting out, if they can be calling on rural dealerships where there's less competition, that's a great way to build a brand and, and a reputation. Um, so I think there are opportunities there. You know, I think agents, you know, continuing to evaluate their product set and finding new and innovative products, you know, I, uh, I'm kind of a heretic in saying this, there are a lot of products out there that are very much alike. Mm-hmm. And most administrators, if not all administrators, but the majority of administrators really do have good service. So the question is, what, what makes a product set better than another product set? And I have come to the belief after working with these companies for the number from a number of years, the best companies are those that are continually innovating. Those that are continually saying, what do my client, what do, what do car owners actually need? What do they need today? What are they going to need a year from now? And those are the companies that are the most exciting and innovative. And that's where agents get excited. And then they have something different to go and talk to a dealer about. Um, I think, I think being an F&I agent would be really hard because you're going into dealerships. If you don't already have a relationship and you're trying to sell something where they already have something very similar that they're doing. So how do you convince them to go with you? That's tough. I yep. think back in the day, it was, well, I'll take you out to dinner and go to games. And this industry has evolved well beyond that. There's yes. such a level of sophistication. And it's everything from understanding the reinsurance and being almost like, it seems to me like a, a financial consultant, like a wealth manager. Um, yep. To be a good FNI agent, you have to understand everything at the dealership and the owner's ultimate goals, um, what they want to do. And so, you know, I think really having product sets that are innovative is what will work best for agents. So then if you're an administrator, continuing to, in, continuing to innovate 
I think is what will draw agents to the administrators and keep the existing agents because then they can say, ah, I represent administrator X and I know you know this line of products. Take a look at this line of products. That's really mm -hmm. appealing to millennials, for example. Yep. Uh, great perspective. It gives me a lot of comfort in being an independent agent and mm -hmm. uh, continuing to grow and thrive in the market that we're looking into and uh, just fascinating stuff. And I think you, you hit on a lot of great points. And it really, um, it's almost like you read our website about being an advocate for the dealer, being mm -hmm. walking side by side with them through this financial journey, because you're doing a lot more than just selling products out of the F&I department. Mm -hmm. You're creating a substantial amount of wealth in today's participation options are allowing the dealer to access that capital for growth, for acquisition, for renovation, for whatever they're doing. So uh, just spot on, absolutely spot on. So um, a couple of things as we kind of get towards the end, because I got to have you on again, because I really want to get into the data analytics and where you see not only the marketing, which I know you talked about, and you have a lot of experience in, in the marketing technology and where that's going, but also the integrated um, car connection from the mm -hmm. manufacturer to the administrator to the dealer and where that's going to lead. So we'll, we'll have to have it on. One thing I really want to touch on is because you are unique in our space, um, being a woman of prominence um, in our space, because one, there's not a lot of women in our industry, in the automotive industry from every single level. I, I, I can't figure it out. I've worked from I've worked for uh, two amazing women, both in this industry, who I just uh, admire and respect, not only for their uh, business acumen, but also the path that they took, because I, I do think it was more difficult path than traditional. So talk a little bit about how you champion that role as a female in a male dominated industry. And do you see that changing at all uh, in the foreseeable future? Well, you know, if you had asked me that question in 2019, I would say yes things are changing. You're going to see more women in leadership roles in the coming years. I'm not quite as sure now. You know, the pandemic changed everything. And, you know, it was a tough time for women who have kids and decisions had to be made. Like who's going to, luckily my daughter's now at college. So I didn't, we didn't have to make these decisions, but I can't imagine what it would have been like if she had been in first, second, third grade, mm -hmm. suddenly having to homeschool while trying to work. You know, either you, you stop working, somebody in the family has to stop working, or you take a much different path, a slower path, a less demanding path so you can prioritize your family. And we've seen this in statistics in the workforce, and more women left the workforce than men, and more women are not going back. Wow. And, and it's happening in their, you know, unfortunately, prime child raising years and prime career years are completely aligned. So they're taking themselves off track. And that puts them, these women then, you know, 10 years out in the position where, you know, senior leadership looks at, looks at a guy and looks at a woman and that woman took, you know, a curvy path to get where they were or took a couple of years off. They don't have the same experience as the guy. Well, it makes sense to go with the guy. I, I get that. So I think um, we are not going to see a, a great growth for a little while in female leadership. But I think 15 years from now, 20 years from now, the guys better watch out. Women are going to college at a higher rate than men. I think I've seen statistics, something like 60 to 65% of the incoming college class is female. Where are all the wow. guys? Okay, you can you know, 
not taking the education path is fine. It's great. It's a great career for some people, but to get to the leadership of, of, of large companies, you need to have that education. You need to have those education credentials. Mm-hmm. More women are getting it than men. And so things are changing. Wow. Fortunately, it's not going to be soon enough for me, but it's going to happen. And you know, it's we're going to see a big shift, but so I think we're about 20 years away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I welcome it. Anything to bring it on. Like I said, I've had the, the pleasure of working for two phenomenal women. Uh, learn so much from them. It's a very different approach. It's a very mm-hmm. different environment. The conversations are different. And I would argue that I think they're more in depth uh, from an intimacy level, um, yeah. depth of knowledge, playing on uh, a little bit more of an emotional uh, role. Um, it, so I welcome it. Hopefully we can pull that 20 years forward a little bit. And anything I, I can so. do to help, I'll certainly do it. I so Gina, so. <laughs> this has been just a phenomenal conversation. Like I said, I didn't even get through half of what I wanted to cover with you. So hopefully we'll be able to have you back on and, and be able to schedule a little bit more time on your calendar. But before we say goodbye, I'd love to get into our fast five, just five questions, kind of a, a little bit lighter. So you talked about the difference between investment banking and private equity. And I'm sure that that just comes up constantly. It's probably a story that you've told for the last 20, 25 years is what's the biggest mis- misconception that you've heard? Like, like you just had to stop someone in their tracks, say, stop talking. You're so off base. Let me correct you. <laughs> um, I guess it would be uh, that investment banking, uh, you know, we're just, those Wall Street sharks, sharks wearing pinstripes that are just out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I would say investment bankers are in it because it's such a cool field, not because of the money. I mean, the money's great. We work really intensely, but because like I start, we started the conversation, the ability to work with senior leadership and pe- see people at the top of their game. I mean, that's a, a coveted place to be in one's career is to be able to work with people like that. And I think yeah. that's really what motivates investment bankers. That's so cool. So cool. So you have deep ties to Chicago and are very familiar with the city. So I've got to ask, um, growing up a little bit in Chicago, I spent three and a half years of my childhood there. My son went Mm -hmm. to school uh, right outside of the city. So we spent a lot of time there. I love Chicago. Gino's or Giordano's? (sighs) I'm more of a Giordano's plant fan. Oh, me too. I absolutely love it. Hard to drive by them. Uh, now, and now they're starting to branch out. There's actually one in Columbus, Ohio. So oh, is there? just a little down the road oh, from us. Great. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So kind of, kind of on the th- same theme, because you can't really talk about Chicago without talking about food. It's absolutely one of the best, if not best food it's cities in food. the country. Absolutely. And, and I, and I don't think it gets enough credit for it and it gets a lot of credit, but I don't think it gets enough credit for it. <laughs> Favorite spot to grab uh, just a good classic Chicago dog? Oh, you know, there's one that my husband, daughter, and I used to go to called Wolfie's just because it's classic. I think that's the one that has this kind of old fashioned hot dog stand with a giant hot dog, like two stories up that's, you know, like 20 feet long. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Okay, so you've done a lot of traveling. Uh, mm-hmm. and you continue to do a lot of traveling. So I imagine that your, your uh, storybook is pretty full of crazy adventures, but <laughs> one that just strikes you off the top of your head is kind of the craziest travel experience that you had. So I had the chance uh, to be involved with acquiring the Six Flags organization when it was owned um, by Time Warner. And wow. so we had to fly around on the Time Warner jet 
to all the, the parks. And we would start the day with like a half day of diligence where we talk about financials, et cetera. And then we got to go to the parks, skip all the lines and ride the roller coasters. Oh and we my were gosh. with the chief uh, roller coaster designer for all the parks. Really? Yes, it was so uh, oh. cool. And there was a one ride he refused to go on. He's like, I don't do this one. I didn't design it. I don't go on these. And I'm like, never doing it myself. It was one of the <laughs> that just drops straight down. He's like, oh, I wow. never do that. So I'm like, okay, I'm not either. That was probably the the most fun I've ever had on a business trip. Wow. How cool. I'm totally jealous of that. That, that would be a great, great experience. Yeah. So, um, okay. So kind of on our last thing about being a female in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you had the opportunity to sit down and I'm sure you've spoken to groups of young women, mm-hmm. what, what's kind of the top one, two career advice that you give them, helping to inspire them, one, maybe into our industry, whether that be investment banking or the automotive industry or F&I, but just career advice in general. So my number one piece of advice to women is to marry well. And I don't mean marry wealthy, although that would be nice if I ever did it again, that's probably (laughs) what it would take, Um, but do what I did and marry well. Find a partner who supports you that gets that your career is just as important as their career. And throughout your lives together, you're going to have to make trade-offs and there's some things that are going to suck, but you do it together and you're is going to support you. They don't, your partner does not feel like their career path is more important. That is the number one key to success. And when you read about female leaders, um, you know, across the world, either the women have been single where they have a partner who's really, they're married somebody who's really and truly a partner, where they've both made trade-offs throughout their careers. Wow. Great advice. Just phenomenal advice. So uh, Gina, again, I can't thank you enough for carving out uh, this time with us. I know your, your calendar's full. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Looking forward to reconnecting sometime in the future. And I know that all of our listeners are going to gain a tremendous amount from this, uh, this conversation. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks.